David Edmonds and this is the Pandemic Ethics Accelerator podcast. The UK Pandemic Ethics Accelerator was a project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in 2021-22 to examine the ethical challenges faced during the Covid pandemic. It combined expertise from the Universities of Oxford, Bristol, Edinburgh, University College London and the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. This six-part podcast series covers some of the themes that emerged from the research. Jamie Webb, welcome. Hi David, thank you so much for having me on. We're talking today about trust. We all sort of understand what trust is, but do you have a handy definition and is trust the same as trustworthiness? So the first thing to say is that they're distinct concepts. Trust is a relational attitude. Agent X might trust agent Y. Whereas trustworthiness is a property of agents or indeed institutions. And trust as an attitude is usually distinguished from reliance. I suppose a morally thicker notion than reliance. So here's a couple of examples. I might rely on my alarm clock to wake me up in the morning, but I wouldn't normally say that I trust it. And in most philosophical accounts of trust, trust is defined as reliance plus something else. Obviously, there's an array of accounts of what that kind of something else might be. But when we talk about trust between agents, usually think, well, if I trust you, I rely on you to do certain something or certain task. And not only do I rely on you, I think that there's an attitude of investment or goodwill towards me to kind of fill that account out further. So that's the link between trust and reliance. Is it central to the idea of trust that someone can let you down or betray you, that that's always a possibility? Absolutely. I think it's essential to the idea that trust can be betrayed. And that's in one way what makes it thicker than reliance. And of course, we can be mistaken about our trust relationships. I might trust someone who is untrustworthy, or I might trust an institution that is untrustworthy. So trust and trustworthiness can really come apart. And actually, in some of the work the Accelerator has done, we've really stressed the importance of focusing on trustworthiness as a kind of foundational concept here that institutions, governments, individuals should be focusing on not just how can I make people trust me more, but how can I behave in a trustworthy manner? Because warranted mistrust when an agent mistrusts a government, for example, is a really good thing. A couple of historical examples, you know, David Hume thought that the consequences of unwarranted trust were much worse than placing trust mistakenly in government. James Madison thought that we should generally distrust government and that that was part of the way he justified the shape of the American institutions. And, you know, if I woke up tomorrow and found out that a vast majority of the Russian people, for example, had lost trust in their government, I wouldn't think, oh, what a shame that we've lost trust here in this case. I think that's fantastic news because those people are not trustworthy. So they can come apart their distinct notions in that sense. So before we end with the definition of trust, I want to talk about one other aspect of it. I guess an interesting property of trust is that one can trust both an individual but also a group or an organisation. Of course, I can say I've lost trust in the Prime Minister, but I can also say I've lost trust in 
the government. We can make sense of that, can't we, of losing trust in a collective? Yes, absolutely. And I think many accounts would stress that there's probably slightly different conditions for a kind of relational trust in an individual versus the trust you might hold to an institution. So often the accounts of trust that focus on individuals will stress to trust a person, you have to rely on them and you have to believe that they have to have some kind of appropriate motivation towards your interests. Now, when I talk about trusting the prime minister, for example, obviously no one would suggest that the prime minister has a kind of individual one-on-one relationship with every single member of the country. But you might think, okay, well, we can describe that in terms of the prime minister having the appropriate motivational states in relation to their duties towards the public as a government representative. So maybe being motivated by the best interests of the public and so on. And then institutions, obviously, you know, there's that classic quote about institutions that they have no body to be punished and no soul to be damned. They don't have motivational states in the way people do, but we nevertheless do talk generally about trust in institutions. So what might that mean? Well, some accounts stress this thing called like a dependence responsiveness. Trustworthy means responding appropriately to the reasons the government has to do what they're being relied on to do. So maybe government making decisions, again, in the best interest of the public, whatever that means, rather than prioritizing electoral benefit. We don't need to say that they have any kind of emotional states. And in a democracy, you know, there might be particular procedural requirements. We expect governments to make their decisions along. It's not enough that a decision is made in the democracy, but that a particular process is followed for decision making that in some way respects the equality of its citizens, something like that. Okay, so those are all aspects of the definition of trust and trustworthiness. Basic question, what's the point of trust? So there are generally two different qualities you might talk about in relation to the benefits of trust. You might think trust has an instrumental value and you might think trust has an intrinsic value. On the instrumental point first, giving the pandemic as an example, the instrumental value of trust can lie there in its capacity to increase compliance with government decision-making, which obviously was especially important during a pandemic where disease is being spread person to person. So adherence to social distancing restrictions that the government had placed is one of the main ways we were able to break the chain of infection, particularly before vaccinations. So compliance with government policy-making would be one benefit of increased trust, although compliance and trust are distinct notions. But also trust has, I would argue, an intrinsic value. And I think in a democracy, you could argue that when we trust the government and when we're correct in doing so, then it's suggesting something. I think it's suggesting that we think that the equality of citizens is being respected in our decision-making and our governance. And also that there's almost an element of self-respect because it's a democratic government. We're in a sense recognizing ourselves as fulfilling that capacity of self-government. And we're respecting our fellow citizens as trustworthy in that capacity. And I think that might be intrinsically valuable if it's held and if that trust is warranted, in addition to the more, maybe more obvious benefits, the other instrumental benefits of trust on policy adherence. Right. So we've got some of the abstract questions out of the way. You have touched on the pandemic, but let's get specific and empirical. Did the British people trust the government during the pandemic? And were there key moments during the pandemic when trust rose dramatically or fell? So one thing you saw at the 
start of the pandemic, and you can see this in various pieces of survey data, is trust actually in government rose quite sharply around March 2020. We saw things like an Ipsos Mori poll that measured support for Boris Johnson at 52%, which was up 16 points from before the December 2019 election. And we saw that quite globally, actually. And what that some have suggested that is, is an example of what's sometimes called the rally round the flag effect, which is usually talked about in terms of wartime, that at times of war, support for government increases as we all rally around the flag, around this collective effort. Metaphors of war have been commonly used in the pandemic as that kind of collective moment of struggle and sacrifice. And you saw that at the start. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on whether you think the trust would have been warranted or not, you know, we didn't see that increase in support and trust last for a particularly long time. We saw a big drop in government approval ratings around May 2020. And if we think back to what was going on in May 2020, we saw the Dominic Cummings affair, him traveling to Durham at the start of the national lockdown in apparent breach of social distancing regulations. He didn't resign. He wasn't sacked. That was obviously a massive controversy at the time. And we saw in retrospective analysis of data, a significant reduction in confidence in Westminster government compared to the devolved governments and the health services in response to that incident. We also saw levels of trust pretty low around the time that the UK government, after several weeks of delay and denial, eventually brought in a second national lockdown at the end of 2020. And then, of course, following that, there were a number of other incidents where trust was negatively affected, scandals around how government contracts had been procured and organised a perception that they'd been given to mates of ministers rather than through a, a really rigorous process. And then even more recently, party gate. There is a very clear perception there if we link it back to some of those theoretical questions that individual members of government were behaving in ways very much not fulfilling their personal obligations to the public. We thought that the government had displayed a lack of competence throughout the pandemic and that had decreased trust and a general sense that the government wasn't really fulfilling its responsibility. So we saw reductions there as well. It's interesting that you cite approval ratings because, of course, one can approve of a government and yet still not trust it. Those two concepts, you can see how they overlap, but they're not synonymous. And I wonder whether there's a great difficulty in measuring trust. Yeah, absolutely. I think one recommendation I'd have is just be really specific in what you're asking recognize that those kind of things can come apart. So, for example, compliance with government social distancing, for example, can come apart from whether you trust the government. You know, I might not trust the government, particularly in its decision making. Nevertheless, I might wear a mask on public transport whilst it's mandated by the government, not because I trust that they've decided on the right policy per se because of qualities about them, but just because I think independently it's the right thing to do for any number of reasons. I might have concerns with my fellow travellers, my own clinical vulnerability and so on that doesn't really have much to do with my attitudes towards the government. You know, I might approve of a government, as you say, but I might not necessarily trust it. I might approve of a government's decision making for purely selfish reasons. I might think, well, I'm a member of a particular demographic that I know this government is biased in favour of my personal interests. But because I recognise that bias, I don't think they're particularly trustworthy at all. So it's really complicated and compliance approval, trust, 
they're all distinct notions. And a final complication is what you might talk about, you know, is the problem of many hands in this kind of big public crisis. You've got many different institutions that are kind of coordinating with each other. And you might have different levels of trust and trustworthiness and descriptions of trustworthiness in each of them. And this did happen during the pandemic. I might distrust the Westminster government. Nevertheless, I might trust, if I'm a member of one of the devolved countries, I might trust my own local government. I might distrust the UK government, but I might have great trust in the National Health Service. So when we're thinking about, did we trust the vaccination program, for example, well, that might be delivered by a devolved government, delivered by the NHS, also involve the Westminster government. So there's a lot of complications here. And that's before we even think about individuals versus institutions as an additional complication of that. Right. So you might trust the chief medical officer, who was Chris Whitty, and you might distrust the prime minister. And I guess that might be one reason why the government, in all its press conferences, would have the scientific advisor of some kind next to them because they were more trustworthy. Generally, trust in scientific authorities, when it's measured, is usually higher than trust in central government. And, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you can see that in a positive way, that it's perfectly legitimate for the government to present the scientific advice from the scientific advisors, from the scientific authorities, that they are better communicators of scientific evidence than on non-expert politicians. There's also a more cynical interpretation, which is that the government is trying to borrow the credibility of scientific advisors. And there's also the fact that the government made a great show of the fact that their decisions supposedly were just following the science. That was a big mantra, especially in the early stages of the pandemic, followed up by mantras like data, not dates, when we were trying to decide when to come out of lockdown measures, suggesting that policymaking was basically being, to some extent, determined by scientific advice, and therefore that the scientific advisors were the best people to put forward that information. So the United Kingdom has a population of 60 million people. Presumably, trust wasn't uniform throughout that population. It varied according to geography, sex, class. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Levels of trust have not been consistent across all parts of society, but really have varied across different demographic groups, including gender, age, ethnicity, socioeconomic background. One survey conducted early in the pandemic found that members of all the generations reported the highest level of trust in government in contrast to younger counterparts, younger black, Asian and minority ethnic participants showed significantly lower average levels of trust in government than their white peers. And I think this connects quite interestingly to questions of trustworthiness, because there was some empirical data which highlighted some of the reasons that BAME people had a lack of trust in the vaccination campaign. Largely, that is a result of the government's hostile immigration policy, its policies towards minoritized communities in this country more generally. If you're the government, you might say, well, actually, we conducted this vaccination campaign in a totally trustworthy manner. You know, no one was asked, as far as I'm aware, no one has been asked about their immigration status when they tried to go and get a vaccination or anything like that. So we did this in a trustworthy way. Well, I think that just demonstrates that trust is built up over a long period of time in relation to a lot of different aspects of government decision-making. You can't isolate it. You can't expect that a community that has warranted mistrust towards you is suddenly going to turn the switch and trust you again in relation to one specific thing. Trust is complicated. It's built up over a long period of time in a lot of different contexts. We've touched on 
Partygate and the fact that Boris Johnson famously or notoriously was the Prime Minister during a whole bunch of social events in Number 10 when other people outside government were not holding those kinds of events. And obviously that eroded trust because it exhibited a kind of hypocrisy and that's particularly annoying. Can I ask you about other factors that might erode trust. Obviously, competence would seem to be one, but are there ingredients to trust? I guess that's an empirical question, but if an individual is to trust a politician, how does that politician need to behave? Well, this has been something that's obviously been considered for a long time, and we almost have the recipe available to us. In 1995, there was the establishment of the Nolan Principles, the seven principles of public life, Those principles were selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty, and leadership. And we can relate those quite clearly to the idea of trust. We trust if we think the person is competent, but also if we think they have these motivational states in relation to the tasks they're performing. And maybe the Nolan principles could be seen as the articulation of some of those qualities, those motivations, the way they relate to their responsibilities in their jobs. And especially in a pandemic where government was obviously extremely prominent, but individual members of government were extremely prominent, particularly the prime minister, particularly the health secretary. They were fronting these press conferences every day, basically telling people what to do in a way that maybe we haven't experienced since the Second World War. And individual acts of hypocrisy, individual acts of incompetence, individual acts of favoring your mates in procurement contracts, in partying when other people were not allowed to gather for funerals. It's hard to overstate you know, the impact that that justifiably has on trust. And once again, just to reiterate, maybe that's a good thing. The fact that people lost trust in government and individuals in government is absolutely a good thing if trust would not be warranted. Is it possible, I don't know if empirical work has been done on this, to track the correlation between an erosion of trust and citizens complying with government regulations and rules? So I think historically there's evidence that what you might call high trust societies are in general more rule abiding. We did have surveys that clearly separated questions about trust in government with questions about compliance with social distancing measures. You can see impacts on compliance when you look at, and obviously some of this is still being done now retrospectively, when you look at compliance with regulations in response to what you might describe as those kind of key scandal points, the Dominic Cummings affair, party gate, points where the government demonstrated a lack of competence in its decision-making. It's not a relationship that can be drawn one-to-one, and it's very important to separate out these different notions when you're looking at any survey data, when you're looking at rates of adherence to social distancing measures. So you've done this interesting work, which both has an analytic conceptual element, but also an empirical component. Governments need to be trustworthy, and they need to be trusted if citizens are going to follow the rules. There's some kind of link there. When the next pandemic comes round, as it inevitably will, what will be your advice to the government that has to deal with it? 
I think there are some things that are often said about how to increase trust in these kind of situations. And one of those things is we should have greater transparency and trust will follow from transparency. And I think to a certain extent that is absolutely true. But I think you need more than just transparency. An obvious point is that transparency into untrustworthy practices will not increase trust. Uh, if we'd had an entirely transparent look into the way COVID contracts were being awarded, we might not necessarily have increased trust because we might have thought that process was being done in an untrustworthy manner. A slightly different point is that the government needs to be transparent about how value-laden and inescapably ethical and challenging these kind of decisions in a pandemic are. So I mentioned earlier the follow the science mantra. There was a sense that the government was trying, it felt to me at least, trying to wash its hands of a certain degree of responsibility. We're just doing what the science tells us. Now, science is obviously going to be incredibly important in influencing the kind of decisions that we make, but it cannot determine them because the best data on you know, the rate of the viral spread and the effectiveness of vaccinations and the effectiveness of social distancing measures, that can't determine what a government should do in response to that. They have to weigh lots of sometimes possibly competing values and priorities when they're making that decisions. So to link that back to transparency, I really think that the government in this pandemic gave a false folk theory of how decision-making was happening. It was all done just in the court of the scientific evidence. And if you just actually opened up the black box of decision-making and showed how complicated and multifaceted and value-laden those decisions were, you might not necessarily increase trust because you've actually told people that you're making these decisions in a completely different way. Another thing I think, and this is, I think, was done excellently, particularly by the scientific advisors during the pandemic, was just the need to communicate uncertainty. So in the context of a pandemic, you are necessarily going to be making decisions before all the information you might like in order to make that decision is going to be available. So it's therefore an essential part of communicating policy to communicate that uncertainty and to justify decision making in the light of it and justify the fact that you might need to make a different decision when more information is available. So a bit more humility and a little more honesty about the fact that the government just has to make value-laden judgments. Absolutely. And I think there was a real moral hollowing out of decision-making in the pandemic. You very rarely heard government ministers talking in terms of the wide range of values that they would have to be considering in order to make decisions. A bit more honesty about that would be fantastic. You know, you could see moments where this mantra follow the science was really crumbling. For example, in the lead up to Christmas 2021, with a debate around whether vaccine certification for large venues should be introduced. I think it was pretty obvious there that some of the factors going into that decision were, for example, preserving internal party unity within the Conservative Party, as well as the kind of issues of public health. So a greater honesty and a greater openness and a greater prioritisation of the right kind of normative considerations. Jamie Webb, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for listening to the Pandemic Ethics Accelerator podcast. You can hear more in this six-part series on University of Oxford podcasts or at pandemicethics.uk.